0: Hello, welcome to the
1: podcast. My name's Dominic Tyre, and I'm PharmaForum's Creative and Editorial Director. In this episode, PharmaForum's website editor, Catherine Longworth, speaks with Dr. Darren Disley. He's the CEO of Mogrify, a UK biotech company that aims to transform the development of cell therapies using a systematic direct cell conversion and maintenance platform that's powered by big data. Darren discusses the story behind Mogrify's technology and his career journey with gene editing company Horizon Discovery Group, which was acquired in 2020. Catherine also talks to him about Darren's passion for developing entrepreneurial talent in Cambridge in the UK and the opportunities and challenges for the UK life sciences industry post Brexit. You can find more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information about other instalments in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and Podbean, where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Pharma Forum.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. My name is Catherine Longworth and I'm the web editor for pharmaforum.com. This week, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Darren Disley, scientist, entrepreneur, and angel investor. He's started and invested in over 40 life science and technology startups. And he's currently the CEO of Mogrify, a Cambridge, UK based company developing a systematic platform technology for cell conversion. Now, this builds on Nobel Prize winning research by Japanese scientist Dr. Shinya Yamanaka. So, very excited to get in and hear more. Darren, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: You're welcome. Thank you.
2: So before we get stuck in and find out a bit more, um, um, I'd love to hear about you and your background and the career, your career journey today.
0: Yeah, so I get asked this uh, a lot and hopefully I'll be able to give you in a nice sort of clear sort of concise sort of way during this podcast. If on the surface of it, if you looked at my career now in statistics, as people saw us, they would see that, you know, what's seen as quite a sort of gold standard sort of education with PhDs at Cambridge, higher doctorates, et cetera. And I've achieved various things in terms of raising funding, IPOs, awards, gongs from the Queen, all those kinds of things. And so on the surface of it, it looks like quite a classical sort of career path. But in, in reality, it's been a real sort of path of you know, partly serendipity, partly on just focus on being good at things that I was really good at. If I started something, I would, I would finish it. I was very competitive. And once I, you know, developed some of the confidence that goes with actually succeeding in a university environment and then early in a business environment, I was able to sort of build on that. But i come from a really sort of non-classical sort of background, really. You know, I was born an East Ender, son of a, a cleaner and, and a builder who was an ex-con, grew up in Bow East London, and then the Isle of Dogs, uh, now known as Docklands, with the shiny buildings. Uh, when I was there, the, uh, the rats were moving out for better accommodations. Uh, And then it sort of evolved from there, really, and part of East End overspill that was moved out to Essex. Very lucky to identify that I was very good at sports at a young age, went to a school that had just been a grammar school prior to turning comprehensive and became very successful in terms of uh, football and got scouted by professional teams, uh, West Ham United uh, initially, but then subsequently other teams I had trial periods with, like Charlton Athletic, for for, for example. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, so I, I wasn't quite good enough to play at the sort of higher level. And something sort of told me that, you know, perhaps I should get an education having left school at, just prior to my 16th birthday without any qualifications. And so I became a, a laboratory technician and played semi-professional uh, football on the side. And through that experience, developed sort of a, a, a solid grounding in practical applied science and was sent to, you, to college. Uh, what is now the University of Westminster? It was a, a further education college back then. Do an ONC in science on day release, so I combined work, playing football, and studying uh, twelve hours on a, on a Wednesday. And out of that, you know, I, I kind of got bored with the job eventually. I felt it wasn't challenging enough, and I was fortunate enough to be working. Uh, very close to a former school teacher of mine, Brian Carline, who was a deputy head at Highbury Grove School, and we traveled to work together and he said, well, you should go to university. And I didn't think I had any qualifications to go to university. He said, oh, I think you, you uh, having distinctions in ONC would be uh, good enough. So I applied to university and I got into Loughborough University and Salford University. And he was from Salford and I had family up there. And it was a very small university back then, very focused on chemistry, industry, those types of things. The strong links to Zaneca up in the northwest so I went to, to Salford to, to do a bachelor's degree and at the end of that I'd done very very well and I'd got into both Princeton University and Cambridge University and Cambridge really appealed to me because it was a new subject I'd never heard of called biotechnology I was a chemist and pharmacologist was my focus as undergraduate and then I, I came there and I was very very fortunate to work for uh, who subsequently I found out was one of the Uh, most entrepreneurial scientists in Europe, if not the world, Professor Christopher Arlo in the Institute of Biotechnology. And prior to there even being technology transfer as a concept at the University of Cambridge, he was spinning out companies with applied research, floating them on the stock market. And he just looked at this multidisciplinary approach to science, hardware, wetware, software, and applying it to markets that would have an impact in terms of the micro, the macro, and societal impact in terms of the medical benefits. And so I got a really good grounding for, from him, really, after I did that. I, at the end of that so PhD, I did a postdoc, I got some really good grounding in his applied research uh, with work that was being done for, for Novo Nordisk to identify affinity ligands and then use them to identify the effectiveness of production of high value therapeutic proteins like recombinant insulin, human factor seven example. So it was again, very applied research, but I still didn't know I wanted to do. So I went backpacking around the world for a year, went to 60 odd countries backpacking. It took some time to think about what I did want to do, what I didn't want to do. And when I came back, uh, things really kind of started to to change for me. I didn't have anything to my name. I had my rucksack and I was working on, you know, working uh, effectively at, at a a local restaurant sort of eatery called trinity street bolts working for two pounds an hour and i was actually doing stripograms on the side age 30 and sleeping on <laughs> my my future business partner dr paul morrell who was one of the sort of commercial co-founders of horizon discovery with me and he was also um he's currently chief business officer at a bit that you may be familiar with they're also in the sort of cell reprogramming field and so after that i got a got a role very quickly for a great company called technology partnership very much you know again applying hardware engineering, software, and I was brought in for the application to life science. And this is where I first really learned how you would build a commercial enterprise. And in this case, we built a consortium and I worked with the, the senior management to pull together AstraZeneca and Aventus, combined with TTP to develop uh, really the first high throughput, high content cell-based screening platform. So in a time when people really used to only screen large numbers of compounds against abstract biological questions like biochemical assays, we were actually looking at 40 parameter subcellular measurement on population statistic basis in 384, 15, 36 world plates. So completely new sort of concept for for the industry. And that that learning how to build a business with your partners, you know, classical early validation, early adoption, de-risking the capitalization of the business by getting money in from partners, building what they want in the industry, and then being able to take those products to, to market was really, really sort of a valuable sort of experience to, uh, for me. And I took that forward initially via uh, some consulting for various companies in the Bay Area when I moved out to the, to the Bay Area. And then when I came, came back in, in in the early 2000s, I think I was in a position then to really sort of start thinking about how I might lead companies. And, and since then I've sort of you know been involved in the, the startup of 13 companies, uh, several of which I've scaled up and exited. And then more recently over the last sort of eight, 10 years doing a lot of investing and working with young scientific entrepreneurs uh, in companies now as an early mentor to the CEO of of Bitbio, companies like Desktop Genetics, GeoSpock in the tech sector, and various others where I've worked with them to actually help sort of build those businesses uh, in the early stages so that they could then scale. And that's really what the, the path has been. And one of those projects Uh, That came out in 2007, I had all these projects running in parallel and and then, you know, a real potential winner came out with Horizon Discovery. And, uh, you know, I know that's one of the things you'd like to ask me about. But there was this sort of broad grounding that I got from working in academia, early stages in industry. You know, I had some, some successes where I learned a lot but perhaps didn't have enterprise control, like equity holdings and things like that, and then I had others that didn't go quite as well, but I, I didn't fail to a point where I could uh, you know no longer be in a position to take an opportunity when it came and and when the opportunities come for horizon, I was already in a position where I didn't need to earn a big income, so I was able to take a full participating risk in in Verizon and, and, and other companies from around 2007.
2: Very interesting, a very colourful uh path to to your career. Um I love it. And I'm just curious, were there any lessons that you learned sort of in those early days that have helped um shape your path as an entrepreneur?
0: Yeah, I mean there's there's quite quite a lot really. I mean, I find business and I haven't not done an MBA, but however, I teach MBA students at various sort of places and and, and have funded 35 students with the Master's in Bioscience Enterprise Programming at Cambridge. So I work a lot with, with those who've got MBAs, MBEs around that. I've actually found that distilling business down to its sort of simplest elements, it isn't that complex, right? So when I think of it, I think about, you know, when you start a business, an entrepreneur really sort of sees a group of people somewhere being treated unfairly. It could be a market that isn't working Like efficiently, like in telecoms, for example, or it could be that you know patient outcomes are not good in a particular area. Why haven't this area of cancer, prostate cancer, for example, outcomes not improved in the last 30 odd years, even though technology advancements have been great? So, but generally, there's a feeling that there's a group or a market that just isn't being served and that you feel you have an opportunity to change. So, that's identifying that unmet need. And the change you can make is either a, a local level, you know, a domestic level, it could be an environmental, industrial, or societal level around there. And you think of it like that. I want this, you know, so when I think of starting a business, uh, I've always felt the same. And, and I think this is ultimately how everyone looks at it is, you know, we have a vision, you know, there is a there is a mountain that we're going to climb together to be able to sort of disrupt this market. Now we may just be disrupting the way people purchase things transactionally by making it more efficient, uh, making it more customizable, for example, you know, customizable cars, precision medicines. You're you're improving the the ability to supply uh, to an increasing volume of customers. Or it could be something that's changing the experience of the way people feel about the world and you know and interact with the world. And that's often done through through technology, often not online these days. And or it could be something that's even bigger than that. As in, you know, it's not about solving a short-term problem. It's it's fundamentally changing how a macro market works. And that tends to have been the area that, as a technologist, I've been most interested in. How are we going to not just solve the pharmaceutical industry's problem of producing drugs in shorter periods of time with clear patient populations where I can get a a reimbursement strategy adopted? To me, that's precision medicine. It's transactional. But how do I get patients engaged with their own health from cradle to grave, utilizing passive technologies that generate data? Early diagnosis, prognosis, theranosis, and being able to link the new pharmacopoeia, you know the genetic medicine cap- cabinet of precision medicines, gene cell therapies, how we get them to people very early in this, in the evolution of their disease where you can have a curative impact or an impact that's fundamentally going to change how those patients sort of experience uh, their disease for the for the better. so I tend to think of company, you know, technologies that are going to affect those macro markets and Uh, And that's just the way the way I think. But people tend to have a a view of what they're going to disrupt. And then the rest is quite practical. You know, you can learn this at business school. You can learn it via mentoring. You know, it's very clear there's strategy, there's execution, and then there's governance. you know, strategy is, okay. we've got our long term vision Uh, that may be a 20 year vision, but we've chosen a business to develop this. Uh, and that they operate in five year cycles, and you've got different funders who are going to fund that business along the along the way. So strategy is important, you know where are we going to play? you know where have we got an unfair advantage? How are we going to win, and how are we going to organize ourselves to win in order to get to the top of that summit and deliver the vision? But that's your business planning around there, and then the final bit for me is governance, which has been incredibly important, is you know just charging up up the hill is not the best way to success. Now you've got to understand how you're doing as you go up those different routes. They all have different risks and rewards. What does success look like? How do we communicate it to all the key stakeholders, employees, management, board, shareholders, and how do you bring an aligned group of stakeholders along for the common journey of delivering that vision, understanding that they all measure success in different ways at different points in time, and you've got to manage them as CEO on and off the bus at different points in order to turn your world-class science through commercial success at each phase into an opportunity to scale a business that can have that big disruption. And I've seen the problems that people get into by going wrong in one of these three areas, particularly in the, in the governance area. So business to me has always looked quite simple and having gone through this now and seen how people think about it, MBAs in the academic world, they're quite similar. And so I think I bring that fact for sort of, implementation of the sort of academic theory into into practice and and that's what i i help others to, to be able to do i don't think it's particularly rocket science
2: Great, right. and you mentioned um mentoring and uh, that's a very important part um of what you do now and you're very involved in ensuring that you're developing that entrepreneurial talent um mm-hmm. tell me a bit more about um the cambridge life sciences cluster and how you see it competing on the world stage um, and the next generation, I guess, of talent coming out of it.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, so I think Cambridge, you, you know, you probably expect me to say this as a Cambridge but I've been really critical in many ways of, of, the, you know, of the UK at the science level. We produce an incredible amount of innovation. So if you think of life science, I sat on the board of UK Bio-Industry Association for a number of years. If UK has less than 1% of the world's population that produces around 14% of its life science innovation. For example, if you judge it based on uh, publication, first authors, et cetera, patent productivity, various things like that. And yet our translation of that into scalable industry with rare exceptions, like Abcam, for example, would be a great, great exception. Sharkshire, a few, but most companies uh, get sold quite early. A good example would be Cambridge Antibody Technology. You know, that innovation, Everyone, everyone's heard of Medimmune and AstraZeneca. But really, you know, if that Cambridge antibody technology would have been scaled into a global sort of early leader, they would have been buying metamunes and AstraZeneca and many of the best-selling drugs in history came from the Cambridge antibody platform. Similarly, with solid state DNA sequencing, Selexa got sold pre-revenue 670 million to Illumina and makes up a vast chunk of the Illumina's revenue as the sort of global dominating player in, in DNA sequencing. So we have incredible strength on a science push basis. And the, the benefit of Cambridge as an ecosystem is you get a multiplicity, the, the, the system that's distributed in terms of faculties and colleges means that you, you don't just have one view of the world through the way a university, a centralized university, looks at it. You've got different institutes, private ones, private public partnerships, you've got the colleges, you've got the student societies, you've got the companies, Around there, who are bringing a multiplicity of sources of innovation, and uh, so that produces a lot of innovation. I think that's the real strength of the community. The second thing you've got that's really strong is now a second and third wave of innovators and entrepreneurs. So you think of innovators like Steve Jackson, you known academic that one of the leaders at the Gurdon Institute as now on his third company, Adrestia, having took Kudos Pharmaceuticals with its drug Limpasa, which is one of AstraZeneca's you know, shining light, biggest blockbuster drugs now uh, from start to exit. And then Mission Therapeutics as the second one, which is well on its way to scaling as a real player. And the third one, Adrestia. And there are a number of academics who've gone through the cycle from an academic perspective and they can pass on their benefits to other academics who want to Uh, to to move out into the innovations going into industry. And then you've got this real sort of batch now of entrepreneurs, which I would come in and be one of those, but there'd be the Jonathan Milners, the the Herman Houses, the Andy Riches, various others who are older generation. And then you've now got the middle generation as as well now starting to sort of come, come through there, around there. So I think you've got a real amount of experience and capital that is being flowed back into the system which means that there are different sources for innovators to go. There are technology transfer offices with associated seed funds. There are series A, B funds. There are now more scale-up funds, and there is an incredible angel network in the area as well. So I think there are lots of different ways to get it done. And then there is an expertise to draw on from mentoring and also from, from the boards. And I think the one thing that's underestimated is we have a fantastic young entrepreneurial cohort that's starting to develop because of their exposure through things like entrepreneurial postdocs of Cambridge, Cambridge University Entrepreneurs, an organization I've been involved with funding for the last 10 years, where people are getting the opportunity very early to interact with, with senior entrepreneurs and funders and start their companies. So you look at Alstone Medical, it's raised hundred million plus funding now. It started with a 5K grant from Cambridge University Entrepreneurs, one that I funded the early grant out of Helix. Just raised a $55 million Series B. Geospot one, I co-founded with a young student entrepreneur through Q, has raised like 30, $30 odd million dollars. And they're just, and these are first-time scientists, PhDs, postdocs, who don't even go through the technology transfer office. They start their businesses straight away and actually then go straight into uh, running their businesses. And they're the ones where people like myself can really have an have an impact. So I think you've got a lot of the ingredients. What's missing, you're probably, probably asking. I think there is still a danger sometimes to not judge your success by global standard. Automatic assumption that the eco, you know, because it's Cambridge, it's, it's up there, and I think that's a mistake. You should look at every innovation within the context of sort of a global competitive landscape. Who are your threats? You know, should Cambridge be the place you set up every business where innovation comes out of Cambridge? No. If your customer base is, in, for example, in the U.S. and your major competition is there and the big pools of capital for those kinds of activities are there, you might start in Cambridge but be planning from day one that you will have a U.S. presence early, whether that's a commercial presence, an R&D presence, or at some point you, you actually just say, okay, Cambridge may be the best for early research, but in translation into development therapeutically all the talent that you're going to need to recruit at the senior level for cell therapy or gene therapy perhaps. Is in the U.S. and all the deep pools of capital that will enable you to to go to crossover where we don't have a lot of capital here in the U.K. and then onto a capital market that works well like Nasdaq. You may on the day one was I think the temptation is to be a bit blinkered and say okay a bit your and it's got to be here by default.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely, it makes sense. And interested to hear what how you think the U.K. life sciences industry um, is going to change um, now that po- we're post Brexit. Um, what do you think could be some of the challenges um, or the opportunities um, with Brexit?
0: Yeah. OK, so perversely, there are some there's some things in the UK as an entrepreneur that there is no better place to set up a company as an entrepreneur. Right. In my, in my view. And, and the reason that is, is because you've got that uh, incredible science push that really is uh, world class. There's no, no doubt about it in, in life science, in auto- automotive and in connected in, a- in AI, in fintech. In areas like that, in, in green renewables, you know, we really have absolute world-class science push, no doubt about it. In the early stage of building a company, uh, the government, going back to the, the last Labour government, the end of the sort of Blair Blair government, if you like, and it was done in cooperation with the Conservatives when they came up with uh, what has been sort of the pre-birth of the New Industrial Strategy, which was creating a framework. Uh, whether it be tax, regulatory, or entrepreneurship framework. So, for example, in entrepreneurship, having such things as entrepreneurs' relief, where you only pay capital gains tax at 10% uh, when you dispose of, which is thus encouraging people uh, to stay with their businesses longer and rewarding them if they're successful. The tax related investment vehicles, uh, SEIS, EIS, venture capital trusts, making it really interesting for people who would made money previously rather than sitting on the beach in Barbados thinking about how they're not going to pay tax and all the rest of it, they're encouraging them to pile their money back in through these funds where they get a tax relief on their income on the first between 30 and 50%. If they hold the shares for a long period of time, at least three years, capital gains tax on the back end is 0%. If you make a capital gain and reinvest it back into risky ventures, around there, again, you get another relief. So it's creating this virtuous circle as money flows out of the system to encourage people to put it straight back into the system rather than taking it, retiring earlier, and going to the beach. So I think they've done some fantastic things there. They've also done some really great things in terms of innovation, in terms of the IP landscape. So we call the patent box, and you may be familiar with that, that if you domicile your intellectual property in the UK in a knowledge-intensive company, uh, like Mogrify, for example, the revenues that flow from that IP moving forward are only taxed at uh, corporation tax of 10%. So mm-hmm. when you think that you know, Switzerland is 14%, the United States is 28%. You oh, know, it's incredibly attractive to domicile uh, your, your business here, which is why if you remember when Pfizer tried to domicile back in the UK from the US because they wanted to repatriate 50 billion of Viagra revenues uh, so they pay ten percent tax on it. The Obama administration came in, if you remember, with that emergency legislation yeah. that prevented people inverting their tax status around this. So there's it, some incredibly attractive things in the in the UK, and some of them will there will be challenges, of course, with uh, Brexit. And I don't want to spend my time on this thing talking about the pros and cons of of Brexit. But some of the things that are obvious that will build will enable you to build upon that sort of strategy would be a faster regulatory environment for pharmaceuticals, vaccines, uh, for example. And you're seeing the benefit of that now, I think. Uh, I think ultimately people will end up being quite proud of the work uh, that Kate Bingham, someone I know very well has done with the Vaccine Task Force. I think that, you know, the, the private public sort of partnership there has worked fantastically well around there and taken advantage of the nimbleness of uh, the post sort of Brexit UK and the ability of the MHRA to. To make its own decisions on how it's going to regulate the approval of those. And I think there's a real opportunity in advanced cell and gene therapy to build on that with the inherent manufacturing capacity that is being built out of this strategy around there. So the the UK could have some of the strongest push in science in advanced cell and gene therapies, also now the infrastructure manufacturing and the will of government to become a leader in this space. So I think that is an incredible advantage. And there are other areas, obviously, like AI, FinTech that we're, we're doing well, that I know they see as a priority as well. So I think there are some great opportunities, obviously some challenges too, as uh, most of the companies that I lead tend to be, I would say 60, 70% of people not from the UK. Uh, so you know oh, there, right. are, uh, there, are naturally cha- there are naturally challenges because you wanna hire the best talent. Right? We have to compete on a global scale. So you have to hire the best talent wherever it is, not the talent that's just local. Now, there's a role for bringing people in who are young, developing them, doing apprenticeships, internships, all of those things, which I entirely buy into and participate in. But you've got to recruit the talent from wherever it lies. So it's going to be really important for the UK government to make it uh, seamless and relatively quick to bring that kind of talent in. And for those people to have certainty for a period for a significant period of time in their employment and even slightly beyond their employment so that they can feel comfortable to bring uh, their families over. Um, so I think, you know, that's a, that's a challenge for, for government. But I think there are some great opportunities as, as well out of, the, out of Brexit without passing judgment on whether I think, oh, in the round, it was a good or bad thing to do.
2: Excellent. And so going back, um, let's talk about the Horizon Discovery Group and your journey there. And we started right from the beginning and helped scale it up. Um, so I'd love to hear sort of about the journey there.
0: Yeah, so that's an interesting one. Um, so that came as a project. So the the aforementioned uh, Dr. Paul Morell, I'd been working with for uh, quite some time. The, you know, our postdocs and PhDs overlapped in Cambridge as a Californian. And we've been working together on a range of different projects. And Horizon Discovery ended up being one of those, those projects. Uh, so our initial view was that we would roll up our sleeves. Uh, we would invest a little bit alongside uh, the University of Cambridge, Cambridge Enterprise, and Jonathan Milner, one of the uh, foremost investors in Europe. Um, he founded Abcam and he's now investing through Meltwind into a large number of different companies. And uh, so we participated in that seed investment. So in uh, March, 2008, having been involved for six months, you know, building the case and the business sort of plan for Horizon, we participated in that that investment uh, and then came in by a combination of, it, of sweat equity uh, and a, li- a little bit of fees uh, participated in the start of that that business and it started off as quite a sort of, um, not quite a clotted industry, but the original business plan was we're going to take this sort of 150,000 sort of pound seed investment and we're going to take the gene editing technology IP that we've been able to secure from the University of Washington in the US and that technology had been used around the world to engineer some human genetically defined cell line pairs which we called X-man cell lines. And we're going to use our IP position to give those universities an opportunity, much like Avcam did with antibodies, to provide us with those cells that they'd made. We'd provide the IP framework, and we would sell those under license to pharmaceutical companies, whilst enabling other academics for a 95% discount to have access to those. And so we were able to secure two or 300 different sort of cell line pairs. Now that was the extent of it. Now we knew, the advantage of being able to do genetically defined cell lines, i.e. You'd be able to take data coming out of sequencing and the genetic variations from a healthy situation to a disease situation, what are the genetic drivers of particular diseases, particularly things like cancer. And if you could model those in these genetically defined cell line pairs, they would enable you to do a whole array of things from identifying new targets that could be gone after in particular genetically defined patient groups. You could do the screening work, the drug screening work to find those compounds, for example, and you could use them as panels of cells to represent groups of patients to um, triage which groups you should be designing clinical trials for. But you know, we knew that that's what could be done and that would in help enable precision medicine, which was our, our goal. But in reality, we had a very little amount of funding and we had this sort of bank of cell lines. So we did what good entrepreneurs do, which is we kept costs low and we went out and we sold, sold, sold. And we were in a position very quickly where we generated revenue. We never lost any money. So in our first year, nine months, I think we made half a million uh, of revenue. The next twelve months, one point two million of revenue at break even or small profit. And if you bear in mind the time, two thousand and eight, the seed funding, it was about to go into one of the worst recessions in a hundred years. And so you know there wasn't that much funding around for these big picture visions at those points. But there was a lot of funding around for the companies who had proven that they could deliver against the plan so we had a lot of investors starting to get interested in the business in 2009 but we didn't need to raise much money so we chose not to raise traditional venture capital we raised money from uh, angels continued with jonathan others uh, brought Herman hauser and other people like that in and genentech who were a customer so genentech came in and then subsequently roche when they acquired genentech came in as well So in the first, you know, four years, which is what got us onto that exponential sort of growth trajectory, we only raised two million pounds of funding and the rest was funding by customers, you know, 1.2 million revenue, 3.4 million of revenue, 4.6 million of revenue. So we were growing very fast and uh, subsidizing our way towards this business plan that I just mentioned with the services towards precision medicine. And then everyone wanted to invest in the business. So we took the opportunity in 2013 to then uh, raise a lot of capital into the business, I think it was about eighteen million over a few tranches at, at that point, which led us to get towards the IPO. The other benefit of doing it this way, which is I think was the success of Horizon, was it enabled us to maintain alignments with shareholders because very early on we were able to return eleven times the university's initial investment through secondary market, and we were able to return seven million to early stage management and founders. So that though and the benefit of that was that those people were now taken care of. They weren't going to become a pressure on the company to sell the business as you went further down. And people could then come to work free of whether they can afford to send their kids to good schools or whatever they choose to do in their lives, mortgages, et cetera. And they were able to really sort of commit to the long term of building Horizon into a sustainable business. And then investors, when they come in, it enabled us to keep them honest, because they had to invest on the same share class, ordinary shares, a significant amount of capital went back into the secondary market to provide back to early shareholders. And so when we as we approached towards the, the IPO, which was March 2014, the IPO for us was not an exit event. It was a fundraising event to actually scale the business to the next stage with a clear strategy of becoming a global leader in gene editing and then ultimately gene modulation. And so part of our IPO thesis was that we were going to go on an acquisitive sort of street add different aspects to our platform technology. We ultimately added drug combination screening, which is important for personalized medicine. We added in vivo gene editing by buying this uh, Sage, which was uh, Sigma Aldrich advanced genetic engineering, and then adding different sort of pieces to that puzzle as we scaled. So, we did the IPO. It was $113 million was the final placement. The order book was around $270 million. So, it was very oversubscribed. And we bought about $60 odd million dollars into the company, and the rest went back in secondary to venture capitalists and others who wanted to take an exit or partial exit at that stage, which then left us with an ability to raise capital cleanly do these acquisitions. So in the public markets, we raised around $250 million, which led to four acquisitions. Uh, the last one being uh, Dharmacon out of GE Healthcare, which was, uh, Horizon was the leader by revenue in gene editing products and services. Dharmacon was the world leader in gene modulation through RNA interference. And we combined those two companies uh, in September 2017. And that sort of really sort of you know doubled the scale of the business, put it on course where it ended up being a year or two after I left in February 2018, I think it ended up around $80 million of of revenue. So if you think over a 10-year period to sort of go from nothing to sort of that pro forma, it was a really good sort of way of uh, running this business. I mean, and ultimately it got sold recently. It didn't perform as well on the public markets and then got acquired in the last couple of years and then got acquired recently by Perkinelma. But the good thing is, those 450 jobs now you know in the UK and US are secured the company is an established company it will play a part it's a small part of PerkinElmer uh, but I think it has an expertise and a capability that means it won't just be absorbed into the local sites of PerkinElmer I think it will be seen as a specialist hub for gene editing gene modulation
2: Absolutely, and it's a great success story. And when you left, um, were you already now starting to think about your next um, focus? Um, and I know that Mogrify started in 2016. Maybe you can tell us a bit about um, the company.
0: Yeah, very very much so. So So Horizon, you know, if you think of the field it was it was operating in, the perfect model of a human is a human. It's not a mouse, it's not a rat, it's not a genetically defined. Uh, heal a healer cell or a cell that's been cultured for 60 years in a cell bank that is not the right context for what you would like to look at so in assuming you can't put things directly into humans which you can't and you don't want to put them into too many animals because it's, it's unethical if you were doing a cell-based system you want a clean pure consistent source of cells uh, which look as close like the the core cell type you want and then you want to do your edit or modulation in those cells and the way to do that was Ips stem cells, inducible pluripotent stem cells, so Yamanaka's discovery that you you didn't just follow Waddington's plot of evolutionary biology uh, rolling downhill, that you could actually change the course of the direction of reprogramming by taking a mature cell, in that case a skin fibroblast, and reprogramming it to an inducible pluripotent stem cell. So going against evolutionary sort of biology mature to young and then you can effectively try and force and reprogram that into a cell type that you're interested in. Now, Horizon was looking at that very early and someone who worked for me then was uh, Dr. Rodrigo Santos, who's uh, the head of cell technologies at Mogrify, was also the head of cell technologies at BitBio when, when they first started before moving to Mogrify. He brought the paper, the nature paper, that Mogrify is built on in, in January, 2016, saying this is the future of and not just research tools, but cell therapy as well. And I'd been investing in companies like Axol Bioscience, uh, which have been using, you know, IPS uh, into sort of neurons and other cells for research tools. I've been supporting other companies like Definogen, sort of early players in the space. I'd invested, I was one of the first investors with Jonathan Milner into BitBio. And So I saw this field as sort of very active. And so I knew of the technology and when I stood down from Horizon, the original position was I was going to chair Mogrify and be an investor. But if you, do, if you search the internet, you'll find pictures of me when I left Horizon, looking, let's just say not as healthy or fit as I do now, 60 pounds heavier, looking like I was, you know, probably not very far from the, from the grave at those oh. stages. I, I needed a break. So I, unfortunately I let Julian and team down saying, look, I need to have a break. And so I decided to take a break and I went traveling for a year. And seven continents hit, hit all different things, shared wow. those experiences with friends, uh, many of whom work for me now at Mogrify. Uh, so, you know, so it was, it was a good experience for me. I came back refreshed. And it just so happened that Julian had done an amazing job at getting uh, R Innovation Capital interested in, in the company. And when I came back with, between one of my last legs, they said they were looking for a CEO but hadn't found someone. And I said, oh, I'd be interested. You know, in investing and being CEO, if it's still available and you, you you're willing to give me a chance, so that's what happened. So I still had a couple of legs of my trip to do. So I started, I think it was, uh, we announced a seed financing of around four million dollars on February 2019, and I immediately finished my last two legs of travel, came back in sort of April, and that's where, where when we began. And uh, the reason I was excited by it is because having gone through this path, going back to when I talked about the Acumen Consortium on Cell-Based Screening. My entire career has followed the path of, how do you get potential therapeutics into things that look like patients as early as possible? And the cell is the key. DNA provides the questions. Functional genomics at, you know, at the, and the proteomics level provide one layer of context, but ultimately things function or dysfunction in cells. So if you're in a position to manipulate, control, produce the cell in a way that can be manufactured efficiently, that you can build in the therapeutic potential within that cell. Example, to me, that's a holy grail of medicine. So, when the Mogrified Technology was put before me, a, an ability effectively to systematize the N minus one Yamanaka approach, and which won the Nobel Prize in 2013 for work they did in 2000, 2007. Uh, which was painstakingly slow, looked at a very sort of narrow frame of reference within the cellular transcriptome, talking about only 20 transcription factors out of 1700, and looking at a permutation of four, the OKSM factors, through educated trial and error, their deep knowledge of particular pathways, they were able to happen across the OKSM factors. But if you wanted to do that on a de novo basis, any four factors across the 1700, you'd be looking at quite literally billions and billions of combinations. And if you look like we're doing at six-factor combinations, that's trillions of combinations. Experimentally, you just couldn't possibly do that. But the potential of systematically being able to identify the transcription factors that will affect a conversion of not just an IPS cell, an immature cell, uh, into a, a functioning target cell, but to take any target cell or cell state so we're talking about mature somatic cells and being able to directly convert, for example, a fibroblast into a functioning lung cell, or create do- directly reprogramming in an organ within the body a cell that is prevalent and converting it directly into a cell that is not prevalent and dysfunctioning. So regenerative medicine. So that's effectively changing a you know a cell into a cell, or you can go directly to a cell that's dysfunctioning in a sick in particular state and reprogram it back to a healthy state directly. So for me, it was like a, this is a holy grail sort of platform technology. So having done the due diligence on it as part of the investment, because I invested alongside RM and 24 Haymarket in that round, I felt that this was a really good place to put the last bet of my career. And then subsequently got, you know, I can give you an update of how we're doing uh, at the end. But that was the sort of real power to me is if you look at, if you look at this, right, Yamanaka showed the way of how you could generate a renewable source of these IPS cells, which enabled a practical use of stem cells. But for us at Mogrify, what Mogrify did, the intellectual leap was what they actually showed that was important was it was possible to reprogram cells against evolutionary biology. So, completely just looking at each cell state as a, a means that can be a reference point to then be converted to any other cell state. That means you don't need to go to immature states. Uh, You can go directly from an adult state to an adult state. So technically speaking, you could remove the need for stem cells, although you might choose to use them for particular applications. And in the market, what this enables you to do is to go away from a de novo approach. So if you look at the sort of uh, market, the market dynamics in this space, there are plenty of companies who have been looking at educated trial and error approaches, or IPS approaches to find a particular cell conversion around there, but they couldn't apply the same approach to create another cell conversion. It's quite specific, de novo, for that particular approach. So they're what I call closed platforms, whereas Mogrify is the key to it. It's a systematic approach, and thus an optimizable approach for either direct cell therapy, ex vivo, so taking cells that are outside the body, converting them into cells that could be put, anyone in the body or the really unique bit is the in vivo therapy. So the ability where you can actually directly, you don't need any other cell type, you're directly predicting the changes that would have to happen in the site of injury to convert a damaged cell to a healthy cell or a prevalent healthy cell of a type that would have been unhealthy. So it's a systematic sort of open platform. And that's what I'm really excited about. And then we've added to that, I think an even more exciting layer, which is epimogrify. Once you've converted a cell into your target cell, how do you promote and maintain its identity in that cell, in that cell type? It's been very well seen. I've seen it in the companies I've invested in that you convert from IPS into your, your forward reprogram, if you like, neurons, cardiomyocytes, et cetera. And those, whilst they have the key uh, markers and, and expression systems, the functionality is quite immature a neuron takes 10 years to develop and you're trying to force it to happen along evolutionary paths around there, where it doesn't look at it from an evolutionary path perspective. It looks at it from an engineering perspective. If you make these changes, it fundamentally changes the state of the cell into the, the finished cell type, so mature to mature functionality and physiology. Now, what you want to do is then be able to maintain that cell in that identity and functionality such that it can then be cultured in conditions that could allow scalable manufacture. And so if you think of Mogrify as identifying the transcription factors that enable the conversion of starting cell type to finishing cell type, what EpiMogrify does is understand the differential gene expressions, so much like what Mogrify does as as a process, but those that code for intracellular receptors for which there are no natural ligands. So effectively ligands that are going to promote the identity genes of your target cell type rather than the housekeeping genes of your target cell. type. So it's going to promote the maintaining the identity of the finished cell type. And through the use of them, the natural ligands there, they're able to create chemically defined media that can then stabilize and promote that phenotype in culture. So it's the two technologies, they're both systematic they can look at the entire transcriptome level and then be able to optimize what the optimum conditions are for conversion and maintenance.
2: That's fascinating. And what are the key milestones now that the company is working towards and where do you currently stand in terms of development?
0: Yep, so with our business plan, very, very simple. We started off in, in, in terms of our platform, you know, validating the platform with pharma partnerships. So effectively doing uh, you know, co-development sort the of therapeutic cell therapy partnerships with one we've announced is with Sangamo, one of our internal programs is partnered with SBRI in terms of uh, chondrocytes, one with the San Francisco Biopharma, so that classic develop with your partners. Uh, we've now moved into our internal development phase uh, where we're focusing on developing ex vivo cell therapies in the field of immunology. So looking at cells that you, you might be familiar with, uh, T cells, NK cells, et cetera, but looking for particular therapeutic applications for those and being able to produce them in a way that can be scaled so the therapy can be manufactured at an affordable price and then they could be profitable as therapies. And then the second area is in ophthalmology where we are doing an ex vivo approach, but we're really focusing primarily on the, the in vivo approach. So targeting sort of retinal conditions uh, that could actually be repaired at the site of injury, so having a major impact on, on site and color, for example. And by taking those through development into the clinic, taking them through phase two to, to phase three or pivotal phase 2B, that's where the value inflections are for us. So, over the next two years, uh, we're looking to get to in vivo proof of concept and uh, process development around halfway through, so around about 12 months from filing. CTA INDs, so that's their focus for the next few years. And then for the 18 months following that, which would lead into a crossover slash IPO, would be getting those ready for and filing CTA INDs and going public on the back of going into the into the clinic. So that's the sort of business plan, if, if you like. But typically, you know, what are the indications that we're, we can go after with these types of cells? So we're looking at things like inherited retinal diseases, retin- like retinitis pigmentosa, in immunology, looking at very much uh, broad oncology approaches, so hematological malignancies uh, and and solid tumours, where there's a real unmet need, I think, for cell therapies. And then via partnerships, you know, we've announced with Sangamo that we're partnered on looking at uh, raft versus coast disease transplant and autoimmune diseases by developing Treg cell therapies. Uh, and obviously, the ob- other obvious ones are in type one diabetes and uh, pulmonary fibrosis. So those we have collaborating with and developing with, with partners so that's the kind of path really and we've made good progress so far you know, so you know we've done all the things that you would expect to see and it's an experienced team so you know, we've moved reasonably quickly from the first employee and myself coming on board in early 2019 uh, we've then brought that investment in really quickly secured custody ownership and expansion of the ip platform uh, we have a, a fantastic brand-new facility, which will help us scale right the way through to uh, the next couple of years. Uh, we're around 65 employees now, about you know 20 months uh, after this. Uh, we've done our first early deals. I've brought in some great team members, so Karen Schmidt, who's CBO, Joe Foster, who's COO. I've worked with them before. Uh, they were key parts of Horizon. Uh, they've worked with them on many other projects uh, as well and co-invested with them on things. So the team has a sort of real sort of good history together. Jane Osborne, who, again, I've known for a long time, uh, was lucky enough to bring her on board as chair. She has vast experience as chair of the UK Bioindustry Association, 25 years at Medimmune, taking uh, therapies like Humira into the clinic and beyond. We recently brought Lorenz Meyer on, who'd been executive director at Bayer, Novartis, uh, senior vice president at AstraZeneca, and chief technology officer at GE Healthcare. It also brought you on the board, so we have a very sort of strong uh, indus- industrial sort of base on the board. We closed our A1 funding uh, in October 2019. We're currently looking at how we uh, approach the next sort of tranche of funding. We still have lots of cash in the bank, but we'll be opportunistic and may bring in uh, more cash uh, ahead of a sort of a series B round, close some more deals. Uh, I think the significant ones were being able to get a first milestone and royalty bearing execute a deal with Sangamo, uh, awards are awards. <laughs> Sometimes you get them when you deserve them. Sometimes you don't get them when you deserve them. We don't take them too seriously. Uh, but the Srip Award was I think really significant for us because that's the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industry. And it's the senior pharmaceutical companies uh, deciding on a technology that they think could make a major impact in the development of next generation therapeutics. So I think that's one we do, I've always taken seriously in my career versus some of, some of the others. Um yeah, so I think That's good work- to
2: hear. I used yeah. to I used to work at informa farmer intelligence, so glad yeah,
0: you we, I think <laughs> everyone takes those everyone takes those <laughs> ones seriously. I mean, of course there's lobbying in every area, but we you know it was just just known that the three times I've got script awards were in very pivotal moments in companies that went really well immediately afterwards. So they picked it correctly.
2: That's great. Oh, okay.
0: you know, which, which 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 was good. And then we spent the rest of this period post that funding, getting our product strategy. You know, in place, you know, where are we are going to play, what therapeutic areas, how we align all our resources and capital to these therapeutic franchises. So we have multiple shots to win in each area, building the key opinion leader networks, the SAVs around that, uh, building the team because you're moving now from research and development. So the composition and skill base of your team and mindsets need to be different in programs that might last three months in research, six months in research to now people are going to be on programs for two or three or four years around the different types of people that you need to need to bring in uh, and as I mentioned earlier you know watch you know keep an eye out I'm uh, very opportunistic when it comes to funding so you don't be surprised if you see something uh, earlier than what you might think for a, a school next round.
2: Great oh well we'll certainly be keeping an eye out um well it's been a real pleasure Darren um given us a very in-depth um overview of your career and Fascinating technology that you're working with at the moment. Um, What what Also, um, I would like to hear your thoughts about where do you think healthcare will be in 20 years time or the future of it? And if you have a vision that you'd like to perhaps share with the listeners.
0: Yeah, I mean, the major global challenges, you know, I I gave a a talk at the Royal Society in 2001 called the impact of the new biology from genomics to personalised medicine. And then again, I opened uh, the conference, the World Congress on Healthy Aging. I think it was 2015 or something like that it was in South Africa. And, you know, I, I started this sort of book. It's one of my great passions. You know, one of the major challenges of the world moving forward is how we going to feed, fuel and heal a population that is growing unsustainably in the world. Right. You know, and it's different in the developed world versus the developing world. You know, you've got a population in the developed world that is chronically aging we're living longer but we're not living healthier you know we are managing to keep people alive a lot longer via these blockbuster medicines now increasingly precision medicines but this lack of connection between the production of advanced therapeutics and getting them to the patient at the right time so very early in the disease cycle is a real problem because you're missing the two elements that i talked about early which is an engaged citizenship in its health care from understanding how health evolves from cradle to grave. Now you have to do it without everyone having degrees and PhDs. So you've got to embrace how you get you know, a blend of schooling, public health, using technology, um, using passive sensors in the home where you collect telemetry about how people are living, are they living well, what are their key vital signs, how they're evolving this is all involves data and sensitive data so there are issues there are major issues around custody of that data and who gets to use it for what but it's going to be absolutely essential if you want to understand beyond genetics which you can do you can do genetic sequencing at birth at different stages to see how that genetic drift that leads you to predisposition to onset of you know particularly genetically derived diseases but genetics is only part of it you have to combine it with epigenetics and then the behavioral impacts on epigenetics and genetics, and that can only come from that education, awareness, engagement, and then this sort of early stage diagnostic, prognostic. So using that's why I love Alstone so much. Uh, can you diagnose in breath, completely non-invasive? Can it be urine versus blood versus you know doing endoscopes and various things like that? And that you get if you get that sort of holistic sort of view of the world in there, you then in a position to really sort of change the way healthcare works. And it's a blend of science push and market pull. It's also a blend of public policy and and engagement, and then using public policy to provide the right uh, carrots. And in some cases, maybe even a little bit of stick in order to be able to sort of, uh, because this is fundamental. The US is about to approach 25% of all GDP spent on healthcare. And it isn't making the difference. You can spend 40%. It won't make the difference in the current system. It'll just push the problems further down, downstream. And COVID is a great example. 80% of all deaths are in 20% of the world's populations, and they are the populations that are predominantly aging, and they are predominantly have poor metabolic and cardiovascular disease, many much driven from lifestyle conditions uh, around there. And you know that is a big problem for the world. So we've got to find a way of making people live, not just longer, but live better, be more productive societally, economically, uh, and that's for me is the biggest challenge for healthcare there are all of these other issues in terms of feeding and fueling which can also be you know, impacted significantly by biotechnology but i think the biggest one is healthcare so it's the affordability and the high cost of developing these innovative efficacious medicines and then the prohibitive cost of the current sort of diagnostic and treatment regimes but technology is providing the basis for the solution this link between hardware wetware software we now kind of starting to really understand the genetic and environmental and behavioral basis of disease, the underpinnings, which would give us, if we could develop medicines based on our, an understanding of that, comprehensive understanding of that, that are more precise, if not completely personalized for the medicine. Right? So I think it, we're within, it's within reach if public policymakers stop trying to be Populist and just saying it's all about money and how well funded something is, which is, you know, more money is definitely part of this solution, but more money doing the same things is not going to solve it. You know, we have to embrace a difference. Technology is really helping the pharmaceutical industry turn things around, developing medicines in shorter periods of time against smaller patient populations with clear reimbursement strategies. So the patients do get a better outcome, but they're not participating in that outcome. They're passive recipients of the medicine. So we need to turn it on its head and start getting people aware, engaged, and so that they can ask more of the healthcare system, but they can also contribute more to it, the money, and then I get it when I need it, that they can actually be proactive participants in that. And that will only come if you have this sort of social regulatory and tax policy framework that will help people take greater ownership of their own health. But in practice, you know, what does it look like? know, it moves away from what you saw 20 years ago, which was failing, the blockbuster one-size-fits-all drug. It transfers through precision medicine, which we've got now, right drug, right patient. But the future is truly personalized on the supply side, the buy side, and the society side, where you actually need to get the right drugs into the right patients who are engaged with their health at the right time, early as possible, and at the right doses as well. And that's going to be enabled by a technology. You're seeing it in the genetic, epigenetic, environmental basis of disease. We are now developing contextual drug targets and understanding heterogeneity of patient response and coming up with drug combinations, better targeted therapeutics. The bit that most work needed is on this last bit, the curation and the link of multivariate evolutionary patient data with this new toolbox of personalized medicines via specific diagnostic regimens. I don't think there's much more to that around, around there. You know, we will along the way get some cures. We're starting to see some cures around it. But if we want to systematically improve healthcare outcomes and have the cost that we can afford as a society, you know, this has to be an approach or close to the approach.
2: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Darren. Um, and I'm sure all our listeners really enjoyed this. Um, do you have one very Important final question. Um, As we have a former footballer, it would be rude not to ask, but um, who is your favourite football team?
0: Who is my favourite football team? I'm going to kind of disappoint you there. I was obviously a supporter of West Ham United, but so I always follow how they're doing. But I was one that followed the players' That I was really interested in, and because I was a a short five foot eight goalkeeper back in the day, you didn't need to be six foot six. Right? I mean, the, the the England goalkeepers were only six foot back in those days, so I, relatively I wasn't that short. So I followed goalkeepers and my heroes. Uh, unfortunately, one of them died recently. One of my biggest heroes, Ray Clements, who was oh. Liverpool's goalkeeper, Tottenham Hotspurs goalkeeper, England goalkeeper, and Pat Jennings at uh, Arsenal. So I followed those two. So I used to always look out for Liverpool and Arsenal as well.
2: Oh. A nice one. All right. Well, thank you so much, Darren. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, yeah. And we'll be following news of Mogrify and your career um, closely and look forward to hearing more.
0: Okay. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Take thank care. You. And that concludes episode
1: 34 of the Pharma Forum podcast and Catherine's discussion with Mogrify's Darren Disley. You can find more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information about other installments in the series at barmaforum.com forward slash podcast. The Farmer Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and Podbean, where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Farmer Forum.